0: To be really informed, you need to know what's behind the national news stories and what's going on in your neighborhood. Consider This, a new podcast from NPR and WNYC, helps you make sense of the day. Subscribe to Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Woven, Sir, by John Berger, which was published in The New Yorker in April of 2001.
1: His name is Tyler. His first name escapes me, probably because I remember that it signified a lot. His first name, whatever it was, evoked the mystery that surrounded him, above all, the mystery of the defeat he had suffered. I always addressed him as Sir.
0: The story was chosen by Ben Lerner, author of the novels Leaving the Atocha Station and 1004, as well as three collections of poetry. Hi, Ben. Hi, hello. So, like you, John Berger is a fiction writer, a poet, an essayist, uh, someone who writes a lot about art. Was that part of what drew you to his work?
1: Yeah, definitely. He calls himself a storyteller which I think is the word that's supposed to unite all his practices but I've always been really amazed by the relation of poetry to his fiction like a lot of his novels have poems inside them <laughs> like Pig Earth the first volume of the Into Their Labors trilogy and I really love his his writing about art I've learned a lot from it and I admire his political commitments but the way that his you know his his marxism he uses the word instead of making him indifferent to the aesthetic, makes him really care about sensory experience and the possibilities of thought and feeling that are opened up and little encounters with works of art. So both kind of formally and in terms of his politics and just his mixture of humor and seriousness in his work, he's always been a kind of fixed star for me.
0: Mm-hmm. Painting was his first was his first uh, art form. Yeah. yeah,
1: so many great writers had something else they had to give up first. <laughs> um, yeah, he was a painter. And, I, and he still, you know, draws and he incorporates drawings into some of his books. He has a pretty recent book called Bento's Sketchbook. It's a really beautifully made book that involves his both drawing and thinking about drawing. And his son is an artist. So, yeah, he, his his relationship to visual art has remained, he's, he's remained in practice, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. When did you start reading him?
1: I mean, I certainly long before I ever wrote any fiction, I was reading his essays. A lot of his essays are really, really tiny and accomplish a lot with one kind of image. They're kind of in the mode of like some of Walter Benjamin's short prose where they're kind of You know, their art criticism, their cultural criticism, they can be really personal and anecdotal, but they kind of function on how a kind of poetic image can gather all the complexity of a historical moment. I've never tried to imitate it, but I've always admired those essays. So I think it was the essays first, and I think I probably read them maybe in college. I mean, I'd probably seen the cover of Ways of Seeing, which was, you know, his kind of classic text that really was one of the first— Books that demonstrated how looking at art was also a way of kind of grappling with historical knowledge. I saw that book everywhere because, you know, it was like a classic textbook. I think my parents probably had it in the house. But I didn't read it until much later, until I'd read a lot of his other work. It's a tremendous book.
0: It holds up to, I mean, it must be written 40, 50 years ago yeah. now. Yeah, I think
1: it really does hold up. You know, it's an early book that mixes text and image in really interesting ways. And that's another thing about his Fiction. I mean, I guess I would say about his writing generally, he's interested in how one medium can absorb and comment on another. And that's really important. I and mean, I think I kind of became a fiction writer in part because of the way that prose fiction can dramatize encounters with works of art and comment on works of art, you know, but without being just professional criticism with letting kind of all these other contingencies and experiences into the into the work.
0: Do you think any of that sort of commentary is at play in this story and woven, sir?
1: Yeah, I do. I mean, in a really, well, in in a few ways. I mean, one really important but pretty subtle way is that the whole story takes place while he's waiting for this Spanish sculptor, Juan, to arrive. You can't necessarily tell in the story, but Berger has written in other places about Juan Munoz, who is a very great Spanish sculptor, actually who died in 2001, quite suddenly and quite young. And the story was published in 2001, which I assume was a coincidence. Mm -hmm. Munoz, I mean, he did a lot of different things, but one of the things he's well known for are these like sculptural assemblages of people kind of spaced in a gallery or public place. And part of the effect of the work is that you kind of sit there and narrativize the relationship between the figures. And this whole story kind of takes place with Berger kind of imagining relations between people who are actually there and the kind of ghosts he sees and interacts with. So I think of it as a kind of quiet work of... Icphrastic literature, you know, is a work of art that describes another work of art. And I just saw that Juan Munoz, I don't know if this came from Berger or, or it was totally unrelated, but he always described himself. He would always say I'm a storyteller. So they both thought of this ability to communicate complex experience without reducing it to information in different media as the kind of thing that united them. And then there's, of course, just everywhere in Berger... You know, the teacher who's the writing teacher also draws. There's the Velasquez bar, which leads to Berger thinking about this nice distinction between what we commercially refer to as ivory paint and the actual color of elephant tusks. And there's even a significant pun, I think, late in the work where one of the characters who he's made into a Greek mythological figure asks about drawing horses where – It's both the labor of drawing horses and the sketching that's taking place in the work. So sketching, other media, painting, sculpture, I think, are kind of everywhere. They're woven everywhere into the work.
0: Well, we'll see how that all works. And now here's Ben Lerner reading Woven, Sir by John Berger.
1: Woven, Sir. I'm in Madrid and waiting for my friend Juan, a sculptor who will be late, I think. Juan works in a small garage like a mechanic lying on his back as though underneath a car. He looks at his watch only when he crawls out and gets to his feet. We have agreed to meet in the lounge of the Ritz Hotel. There are two exotic trees and, leading off this lounge, a bar named after Velasquez. I doubt whether he drank much. The walls and the ceiling are painted a whitish yellow, not what the paint manufacturers call ivory, but the true color of elephants' tusks, much closer to the color of old teeth. The ceiling is as high as three elephants standing on one another's backs. As soon as you come off the street and the double glass doors swing shut behind you, you are aware of the deafness of money. It's not an empty silence, but a silence of seclusion, like that of the depth of an ocean. The wide carpeted staircase is palpably quiet and in the lounge the voices of the people talking are muted. Two waiters carrying tinkling trays of glasses full of champagne wear white gloves. The seclusion, here, prompts me to remember the clamor of shanty towns and the everlasting racket in prisons. The first guests are arriving for an evening reception. A reception is being held to launch the new Venezuelan economy, which evidently now depends on Spanish investors. The guests, mostly in their 30s, have surf-riding smiles, controlled eyes, and a way of tilting themselves forward, which makes me think of the figureheads once carved on ships. And the muted, quiet cameramen and journalists are waiting for the stars who have been announced ahead of time. Not far from where I'm sitting, Three hotel guests who appear to have nothing to do with the reception have installed themselves on two sofas in a deep armchair as if they were at home. Perhaps they are at home. Perhaps they never leave their home and, like snails, carry it with them. The waiters and the cameraman are respecting their claimed territory. On the floor between the two sofas is a large Chinese carpet and the man of the trio, who is also the youngest, is pacing slowly smoking a cuban cigar those invited to launch the new economy are all women and men agents of promotion i wonder if it is the imaginative effort of promotion which obliges them to lean forward in the way they do i imagine some of them at the end of a long day catching a glimpse of themselves reflected in a glass when this leaning forward then provokes a kind of paralyzing panic a fear of falling forward flat on one's face, like the panic sometimes visible on the faces of those suffering from Parkinson's. This evening, however, they are confident as they lean forward to take the glasses of champagne from the trays offered them by the waiters with white gloves. For the man with the Cuban cigar, smoking appears to be a way of slowing down the process or possibly his awareness of the process of things getting steadily worse. A young woman, seated on an upright chair opposite me, is reading a book. Like me, she is waiting for somebody who is late, though she looks toward the door more frequently than I do. I suspect she is waiting for a lover and is beginning to doubt that he will turn up this evening. The mounting crescendo of her disappointment is expressed by the ever briefer glances she accords to the book. Suddenly, she slaps it shut gets to her feet, and walks out between the camera lights set up for the stars. I see a man coming down the wide staircase, a room key dangling from his lightly clenched fist. From the way he holds the key, it could be a bird he has in his hand. He is wearing a checkered cap tweed jacket plus fours with heavy woolen socks and brogues. His name is Tyler. His first name escapes me, probably because I remember that it signified a lot. His first name, whatever it was, evoked the mystery that surrounded him, above all the mystery of the defeat he had suffered. I always addressed him as Sir. I don't think I would have noticed him coming down the staircase if it hadn't been for my unexpectedly meeting my mother in Lisbon a few months previously. I hadn't given Tyler a thought for years, and the last place that might have triggered a memory of him would have been the Ritz. The meeting with my mother had led to my observing things differently. I met her in the Praça da Alegria, the Square of Joy, a small public garden with elms, palms, and jacaranda trees, very old-looking. Chickens were pecking for worms on the grass. There was a flowery plaque celebrating Alfredo Quell, who wrote the music for the Portuguese national anthem. An old woman with an umbrella was sitting very still on one of the benches. I thought she was watching the chickens. Then she got to her feet, turned, and walked toward me, using her umbrella as a stick. I instantly recognized my mother. What are you doing here? I was amazed. There's something you should know, my boy. It's that the dead don't stay where they are buried. Naturally, I replied. I'm not talking about heaven, she said. Heaven is all very well but I happen to be talking about something quite different. The dead can choose where they want to live on earth, always supposing they want to stay on earth. They go back to some place where they were happy? You always thought you knew the answers. You should have listened more to your father. Where is he now, I asked. I don't know, but I fancy he may be in Rome. Because of the Holy See? Not at all, because of the tablecloths. I see, I said. You may meet the dead anywhere, she said. Tyler is now at the bottom of the staircase and has taken off his cap and is coming into the lounge. As I follow him with my eyes, he looks away. He had a great gift for looking away and avoiding questions. He chooses the chair vacated by the woman who could wait no longer for her lover. There he picks up a menu for drinks and sandwiches and studies it through his thick glasses, bringing it close up to his forehead. Often when he dropped some small object, the stub of a pencil or an eraser, it was I who would look for it on the floor because he could not see without bending down. Once the frame of his glasses broke. It was a very cold winter, and it was I who mended them for him with some sticking plaster that we bought at a chemist's shop. This was in 1932 or 1933. I was seven years old. Now he turns the chair he has chosen so that he is not facing me and gives his order to a waiter. On one of the trio's sofas reclines a woman with platinum hair. Her skeletal legs are crossed and a shoe is dangling from her arched foot. She is over 80. She might be the cigar smoker's mother. She too is smoking, her cigarette in a long holder, and the skin of her face and neck is like crepe paper. Her head, chin up as she exhales the cigarette smoke, reposes on a cushion. Her left arm is draped along the back of the sofa and the flesh of her arm is draped from its bones. She is wearing golden bracelets and a pearl necklace. Does she come from a circus or a chateau? She is full of disdain and has the pride of all the appetite she has not lost and is determined to satisfy. Maybe Circe, on her island of Aeaea, was more like this woman with the platinum hair than the one in the usual depictions centuries later in Renaissance paintings. The third member of the trio is the confidant, at least for this evening, and, who knows, perhaps for life, of Circe. Maybe she is her sister Pasiphae, the one who had an affair with the bull of Crete and gave birth to the Minotaur. It is impossible to guess the age of this person tumbled into the massive armchair beside the sofa because of her size. Her immensity seems like that of time itself. She wears rings on seven fingers. Her neck is as wide as a slender woman's waist. From time to time she glances protectively at Cersei. The waiter brings Tyler a bottle of white wine in an ice bucket and a silver stand of sandwiches decorated with parsley. An actress Accompanied by three men and wearing a backless dress makes her entrance into the lounge. She is resplendently pregnant. In answer to a journalist's question, she gently pokes a finger to make a dimple in her belly and says, The middle of June. The people applaud. A waiter asks me whether I would like to order something. I do so. After a moment, I hear Tyler's voice. I notice that, regrettably, you haven't improved your pronunciation. You were as lost in Spanish as you once were in English, he says. I do my best, sir. You don't listen to how other people talk. You never say to yourself, he speaks well, so I'll listen to him and learn how to speak. I listen all the time, sir. You don't listen with enough patience. I can listen for hours. Then why do you pronounce so badly? I don't listen to their words, sir. Exactly. During this conversation, Tyler sips his wine and doesn't glance in my direction for a second. Circe is eyeing him with some interest. She is probably telling herself that he is only half her age, but that he is so evidently a gentleman he will ignore the difference. If you want to catch a ball, Tyler explained to us in the green hut, you don't snatch at it in the air, you watch it coming and then place your hands accordingly. The hut was roofed with corrugated iron that was painted green. It had a door that fitted badly and three small windows. There was no heating and no water. Tyler and I brought the water each day in his car. What did we do about shitting? I don't remember. Maybe there was an earth closet outside, a vague memory of vomiting there once. This hut on the edge of the field was our school. Nobody, however, referred to it as such because Tyler insisted that he was not a schoolmaster but a tutor, a tutor in a green hut. A young government minister has arrived. He is surveying the lounge to see who else is there. In a minute he will decide whether to make his entrance straight away or wait a moment in the Velasquez bar. His bodyguards, too, are surveying the lounge and the entrance hall and the hotel reception desk. It was in the green hut before the eyes of Tyler, now eating his sandwiches decorated with parsley in the lounge of the Ritz Hotel, that I first learned to write. At a nursery school, I had learned to form the letters, all of them from A to Z, belonging like moles or birthmarks or beauty spots to the pert, pretty, rounded body of my teacher, Leo, whom I desired. Forming the letters, however, was not writing, as Tyler pointed out on my first day in the green hut. Writing involves spelling, straight lines, spacing, words leaning the right way, margin, size, legibility, keeping the nib clean, never making blots, and demonstrating on each page of the exercise book the value of good manners. We were six, all from different families—Wood, Henry, Blagden, Bose, Leon, and one I've forgotten. For every lesson, we sat at the same small table—Tyler— When he wasn't looking over, our shoulders stood behind the workbench on which, twice a week, we learned carpentry. Most educational establishments are mysterious, perhaps because teaching and folly are often the same, and the Green Hut was no exception. I still don't know how the place came to be, how long it had existed before I was sent there where Tyler came from. He coached boys to get into what were considered good schools, I don't think my parents, unlike the others, paid any fees. I think he ate free in my mother's café in exchange for his improving my English and making it possible to pass me off as a gentleman boy. We both recognized the hopelessness of the project. I was with him for two and a half years, and this was our secret, which made us, in a strange way, accomplices. You're going to make a mess of your life. Why, sir? Because you can't saw straight. It's difficult to hold, sir. Only because you're scared of its teeth. Are you frightened of sawing your thumb off? No, sir. Then saw straight. Apart from carpentry, we learned arithmetic, geometry, Latin, drawing, the history of the royal family, geography, physics, and gardening. How do you spell hyacinth? With a Y, sir. Of course, but where is the Y? You're in too much of a hurry. Let the question sink in. Take the measure of it. During the winter in the green hut, the six of us suffered from the cold. There was only a portable paraffin stove, nothing more, and on certain days the can of paraffin was empty. Tyler would pretend he had forgotten because he preferred us to think that he was absent-minded rather than broke. We had red noses, chilblains on our fingers and toes, and sopping handkerchiefs stuffed into the pockets of our shorts. In the months of January and February, Tyler often wore a long, loosely knitted woolen scarf whose colors astounded us, white and lilac with little flecks of pink, such as you see mixed with snot on your handkerchief after your nose has stopped bleeding. After the last lesson of the afternoon in the hut, driving in his car to his home, from where, later, I caught the bus to mine, he would offer me, as I sat beside him, half his scarf. Where did it come from, sir? You ask too many questions. You do it to draw attention to yourself. I'm interested, sir. You never stop being interested. That's where the trouble begins. Wrap this end around you, keep quiet, and put your gloves on. Circe sits up and, with a flick of her head, tosses her hair back. Senor, she asks Tyler, do you find the sandwiches here good? The bread is a little too thinly cut, but otherwise yes, senora. She gazes at him shamelessly. The elegance and sadness of his reply allow it. Tyler's car was an Austin 7. The roof was a kind of tarpaulin with brackets that folded. On winter mornings, he had to start it by turning the crank handle. I sat in the driver's seat on the very edge so that my right foot could touch the accelerator if the engine caught. Sometimes it took us ten minutes. I would shiver, and his mustache got frosted. Tyler lived in two rented rooms on the ground floor of a large house with a rose garden, which he did not have the right to sit in. The house belonged to a widow whom I occasionally glimpsed wearing a fur coat or a floral summer dress. She, like Tyler, was a Catholic, which is why she agreed to rent him the two small rooms. He was allowed to leave his car in the drive, but only in one place, at the back of the house by the kitchen door where the dustbins were. We'll be leaving tomorrow, Circe says, touching the shoulder of Tyler's tweed jacket, leaving for Weska. I feel, senor, that you would love Aragon. You might accompany us. The cigar smoker, Toleganes, if he's really the platinum blonde son, is now helping to get Pasiphae out of her chair and onto her feet. It is a hard struggle, and they need both her crutches, which fit under her elbows to prop her upright. Once on her feet, she turns toward Tyler. I think you would enjoy seeing our horses, she says, once more, I wonder whether they come from a circus or a chateau. Tyler's two-rented rooms smelled like the green hut of his cigarettes. He smoked a brand called De Resque Minor. On the windowsills of the two rooms, he grew flowers and wooden boxes, and on the mantelpiece above the gas fire, he kept the seed packets. They were arranged on either side of the clock like letters in their envelopes. Evening primrose, Red Campion, Meadow Cranesbill, Cobia Scandens, Tanagra, Sweet Sultan, Flax, Phlox, Larkspur. It would have given him pleasure if I had been able to remember the Latin name of just one of them, but there and his living quarters lessons were out of the question, so Larkspur remained Larkspur. In the green hut, Tyler demanded work and obedience. The smallest sign of what he called slackness would be punished by a rap over the knuckles with a knotted yew branch that hung on a hook beside the cupboard where he kept the rulers and exercise books. In his two-room slackness was ignored, and he demanded only quiet and company. He spread honey, given him by a beekeeping friend on a slice of toast, toasted in front of the gas fire, and he offered it to me, on a hand-painted plate. The plate was decorated by a friend of mine, he said. You recognize the plant? Not yet, sir. The flower of the so-called strawberry tree. Strawberries on a tree, sir? He didn't bother to reply. Tyler made drawings, always with an HB pencil. Sketches of Tudor cottages, churches, driveways, willow trees, sheep, delphiniums. "'some of his drawings he had printed on postcards. "'Do you sell them, sir? "'I print them for my friends. "'This way I can offer them a little present. "'Nobody can help him,' I told myself "'as I sat in the wicker chair before his gas fire, "'rubbing my chilblains and eating my toast and honey. "'He's too old, and he has too many hairs "'growing out of his body. "'Pacifee, on her two sticks, is crossing the reception.' People make way for her, and when she stops to regain her breath, they move around her as if she were a natural landmark. It is her effrontery that puts them at ease. Did she die? Who are you talking about? Tyler asked. I nodded toward a photograph by his bed. Never, never talk, he said, about what you see on somebody's bedside table. Study it if you want to. He picked up the framed photograph and put it in my hands. Remember it if you like, but say nothing, for there's nothing to be said. Nothing. At last, the TV star arrives. People have been standing in the street outside the hotel for almost an hour in the hope of catching a glimpse of her. She is tiny, even smaller than they thought, perfect, with tumbling black hair, wearing silver. Cameras flash on all sides. We all of us hope to find, in this impromptu, unscreened moment, something beyond the frame, something that equalizes. For example, the fact that she too farts, like us. Meanwhile, we are also waiting for the opposite to happen. She has so much perfection, much more than any single person needs, so she could throw us some. Tyler takes a pad out of his pocket, and begins to draw one of the trees in the hotel lounge. It is at this moment, as he begins to draw, that I remember the immensity of his solitude. Perhaps with me, given my age, he felt no need to mask or hide it. Anyway, his glasses magnified the solitude expressed in his eyes. The man who taught me to write was the first person to make me aware of irreparable loss is returning on her crutches from the Velasquez bar. Did she have a drink there? When she reaches her chair, she has the problem of lowering herself. Calaginas is at the ready, but it is safer to have a man on each side, so she glances at Tyler, who, straight away, comes and places one of his huge hands under her colossal elbow. Are you an artist, senor? No, it's a pastime, senora. The TV star, Accompanied by a guitarist has started to sing. She sings simply, her eyes almost shut, her silver hips almost still, her lips almost touching the microphone. On a tree trunk, a young girl, jubilant, carved her name. You are she who cut into my bark. Tyler died in his 50s soon after the Second World War. His death involved a story about a gas fire or a house burning down or an accident with a car left running in a garage with the doors shut. I have forgotten the details because they suggested that the methodical, tidy, gruffly, shy man who believed that quality mattered more than anything else in the world died or even put an end to his days through indifference or carelessness. We'll be leaving shortly, Cersei whispers, standing at his elbow. It's a big car, and there's plenty of room for your luggage. I have very little, senora. Like this, will you draw our horses? Pasifee asks him. When you shade a drawing, you do not scribble. Is that clear, Berger? You shade carefully, putting one line beside the next and the next and the next. Then you cross-hatch, and like this your lines weave the sketch together. The verb to weave. Past participle? Woven, sir. Juan comes up behind me, puts his hands over my eyes, and demands, who is it?
0: That was Ben Lerner, reading Woven, Sir, by John Berger. The story appeared in The New Yorker in April of 2001 and was included in Berger's collection, Here is Where We Meet, which was published by Pantheon in 2005.
1: The New Yorker Festival is back and it's our 21st year. Undeterred by COVID, we're coming to you virtually with a fantastic lineup, and you can enjoy it all without even putting on your shoes. Chris Rock is joining us, Jerry Seinfeld and Steve Martin too, and a performance in conversation with Fiona Apple. There's also Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Eric Holder, and many more. You can find out everything that's happening and buy tickets at newyorker.com slash festival. Again, that's newyorker.com slash festival. See you there.
0: So, Ben, this is one of a series of stories where Berger's narrator, who's called John or Berger, encounters ghosts. In another story that was in the same collection, he runs into his mother in Lisbon, and that's referred to here. He runs into an old mentor in Krakow. Here he sees this this former teacher in the lobby of the Ritz in Madrid. Why do you think Tyler comes to him? Why do you think this teacher comes to him as one of these few ghosts in these stories?
1: I think on the most basic level, it's because Tyler is who he credits with teaching him how to write. But it's also because Tyler, as he describes later, Tyler, who has this loss, you know, probably this person who's depicted on the bedside table, he's the first person, Berger says, who kind of represented irreparable... Loss as a child, like the idea that it was something you couldn't recover from and couldn't really name. And I think that for Berger, I mean, for most of us, but certainly for Berger, how he thinks about storytelling, there's a real relationship between the communicable and the incommunicable, and that it's important for him that the person who teaches him how to write also teaches him that there are some things that can't be talked about and can't be expressed and can't be corrected. It's that mixture of kind of expression but also understanding storytelling is precisely communicating what can't be expressed in language that there's an opaque spot at the heart of a story I think has to do with part of it and I think one of the really lovely ways that's communicated too is it's hard to remember in the story that Tyler isn't a first name Mm -hmm. because there's such an intimate treatment of it but I mean I you know I didn't know the first name of teachers for many years but he talks about how he can't remember the first name not because it didn't matter, but because it probably signified a lot, it's too much to remember in a certain way. Like he can't let him have that kind of intimacy. So I think it's this kind of primal scene of writing that's both about what can be said and what can't be said. And those are the two kind of poles and the dialectic of storytelling.
0: It's interesting, though, that he credits Tyler with having taught him to write, but then he defines being taught to write as learning spelling, straight lines, spacing, words leaning the right way, you know, good manners in the exercise book. That's not what a writer normally thinks of as writing. That's That's it's It's a mechanical thing.
1: That's a really good point. I mean, which I think for me emphasizes the loss part that would really taught him how to write was how significant Tyler's silences are. Mm-hmm. it does seem really significant for Berger that that first teacher of writing, that even in that mechanical way of writing, it's also thinking of writing a little bit as drawing. Mm-hmm. And Tyler as a drawer, and Berger was, you know, drew first and continues to draw. And I think drawing for Berger represents this kind of limit of language where you're not just writing words and what they denote. You're in this kind of sensual contact with the words. So I think that that is interesting and makes Tyler... A teacher of loss as much of a teacher of literature.
0: And it makes writing a physical act. Yeah. Something that's actually concretely happening with your hands.
1: Totally. And I think that that's so crucial for Berger and his approach. Part of where Berger's Marxism shows up is just in understanding the complexity of labor. When you make a mark on paper, there's a whole history and not just in the language, of course, you know, but also in like your posture and your implements. You know, he names the kind of pencil Tyler used, for example, so that there's a kind of commercial history there when he talks about the paint, like from the very beginning of the story, there's a mixture of art and labor. Because, you know, Juan, the sculptor who isn't there, he he talks about him working like a mechanic.
0: Right. And lying on his back on a dolly under the car type of thing.
1: Exactly. And so I think there's always that writing is a physical, historical practice for Berger. And what's amazing about him is how he, you know, he doesn't just make big claims like writing is a historical, physical practice. He manages to find the details that sediment all that complex history in an image or a phrase.
0: Going back to the question of Tyler's first name, do you think we're being invited to guess what it could be? I mean, he makes such a big deal of how this name encapsulated the entire mystery surrounding Tyler, the mystery of his defeat, which is also not defined for us, really. I mean, there are a lot of possible defeats that are alluded to. Do you have any guesses? (laughs) That's a really interesting question.
1: I didn't guess, even though this is probably a historical enough person that we could even find out. But what your question makes me think of is how interesting the fact that Juan's last name is withheld and Tyler's first name is withheld. And I think that, you know, because Juan is a notable sculptor, you know, he is somebody whose name you can find out. It kind of made me, I think your question makes me realize that how many of these characters have one or the other. And then, of course, the names change when people become mythological figures later. So I, I think it made me wonder more about Juan's last name than it did about Tyler's first name. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Do you have any guesses about it?
0: I don't. I'm trying to think of a first name that would encompass defeat and loss and um, right. <laughs> and explain the mystery.
1: There's such a weird intimacy and distance between the young Berger and Tyler that the kind of ambiguity of the name becomes part of it. You know, the mm-hmm. way at school, he's like a real taskmaster and I'll hit you on the knuckles. But then they go home, they share a scarf, they like yeah. sit in silence together. So it becomes more and more intimate as the story goes on.
0: And um, What do you think, why does uh, this narrator go home with Tyler? Why do they have this arrangement where he's in his rooms?
1: It's unclear. I mean, he talks about company. He talks about something like he wants quiet and company. I mean, mm-hmm. it's clear, I think, in the story, or at least clear that Berger thinks that Tyler needed that presence and companionship. But I don't know. You know, I mean, I think that there's so much information withheld about Tyler precisely so we can wonder. And I think that for Berger, like for Benjamin and other kind of thinkers about the storytelling, it's really that omission that gives space for the reader that really is what gives it resonance.
0: Well, I I asked because I was looking at the story in the collection of stories. And on the book jacket, it refers to a pedophile schoolteacher. Really? I didn't get that at all while reading the story.
1: That changes things.
0: Well, it does it or doesn't it? You know, is it just someone who didn't know who <laughs> was yeah. writing the book jacket copy? It's a very strange thing because there's a lot that's unspoken here, but you don't get the sense that it's abuse that's going unspoken.
1: It's funny because when it talks about why Tyler is even allowed to have these rooms and it's because he's also a Catholic, and then there's this kind of loss that isn't i mean I remember feeling that the loss the bedside table scene was important to kind of mm-hmm. somehow make it okay mm-hmm. that they were ensconced in the room. That's very interesting. I can't remember if how that interacts with the rest of the collection, but that's a one of those instances where jacket copy really makes things more <laughs> complex. I mean, because that, that would change. Or more simple. Or more simple, yeah. yeah. I mean, right. Yeah. I guess it would really change that, you know, suddenly we would be using the word repression about mm-hmm. the first name being unavailable.
0: But you don't you don't sense that that's what's happening in the story.
1: Well, you know, the thing about a frame is that it changes what you sense in a story. Yeah. So I certainly, without that frame, without that knowledge, don't read that as, yeah. I mean, there's a lonely man and a young Boy, I mean it's not a relationship that would exist now for sure, without lots of suspicion, yeah, but there's so much it seems like uncomplicated sympathy for Tyler in the story that it's not how I primarily would have read it. But with the frame, you know, it's like, I mean, I think of the, I can't remember which Pollock, but because the Minotaur is mentioned in here, there's a Mm -hmm. Pollock that's either called the Minotaur, it's from Circe, or there's some mythological title, which many very powerful critics could see the bull and the Pollock. (laughs) And then it turns out that the title wasn't Pollock's, it was given after the fact. And so suddenly, right, you know, it was You, You don't
0: see it anymore. You don't see
1: it anymore. So I think that that happens with fiction, like the way you frame or caption it really changes the feel.
0: What do you think the emotion is for for the narrator, for Berger, when he sees Tyler in the hotel? I mean, there's a sense Tyler's turning away, never makes eye contact, he won't look at him. He turns his chair even. There's something between them that's complicated.
1: Yeah, well, and Tyler's linked, you know, to his mother. He says that he wouldn't have ever thought about Tyler if he hadn't seen the kind of ghost of his mother in Mm -hmm. Lisbon. It definitely seems, although this is also so kind of conventionally English, it just also seems that that whole relationship, whether it was uh, healthy or not, was dependent upon a kind of intimacy that couldn't be spoken that they could share silences about things Tyler wouldn't talk about and that their own relationship didn't have language. You know, Tyler w- didn't want to be called a schoolmaster. He wanted to be called a tutor. Mm-hmm. So there was this kind of invention of a private language between them and the other students. So I don't know. You know, I mean, I guess what I would say is that if it is a story about abuse and the memory of abuse, it is an incredibly non-judgmental and impersonal depiction of that relationship. There's nothing in the prose that makes me think that Berger wants to write about a psychic wound he suffered.
0: No. And also you have his sort of repressing the actual cause of Tyler's death because it doesn't fit with the tidy, methodical nature of the man he knew. That's right. And you wouldn't quite imagine anyone calling uh, an abuser methodical or tidy or, you know, shy or any of those things.
1: The other thing is that Tyler's concern with quality... Mm-hmm. That Berger emphasizes is understood in the Ritz as a counterpoint to a kind of horrible excess. So that whatever's happening with Tyler, we understand him as having a totally different relationship to exchange and totally different than the kind of agents of promotion that he talks about and the stars. And that's, you know, that shows up in a lot of different ways, including the fact that he makes these postcards he doesn't sell. You know, he gives them away. There's this emphasis on a way of thinking about art and a relationship to community that isn't commercial, which really seems to be, for Berger, praise.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So it certainly isn't a denunciation, whatever else is happening.
0: In the well here, and in the story with the ghost of the mother, the mother says that the dead choose where they want to go after they're dead. Why would Tyler go to the Ritz in in Madrid? Which you know, even Berger says is the last place one would imagine him.
1: I don't know, and I think it's really interesting that he doesn't talk about that. One thing is the silence. He talks right at the beginning of the kind of the silence of seclusion, like this. of of money. And Tyler is obviously nothing if not silent and demanding silence, or at least quiet. I think the other thing is that Berger's thinking about loss and writing is linked, that part of it is just that when the lost come back to him, it moves him towards these kind of er er-memories of writing and omission, of writing and what can't be recalled. Ghosts and Berger is like the kind of Prussian involuntary memory. But I also think it's money, Berger remembering the humbleness of his own origins relative to the writs and Tyler's modesty of means and disposition relative to the kind of excess he sees. So it's somewhere in that swirl of things. And also I think that there's a kind of like swirl of origin mythologies, like the way that other people become mythological figures. I think that this kind of half-remembered figure for him is also – kind of mythological and, you know, the way that a teacher can be.
0: Right. So let's talk about those uh, the trio in the lobby whom he gives mythological names to and who are very astr- so extravagant that he doesn't know if they're from the chateau or the circus, you know. Yeah. Why do you think he chooses these names? Why would he look at an 80-year-old woman with dyed blonde hair and call her Circe?
1: You know, I think that there are like too many answers to that. You know, I think that part of what he's reaching for is this kind of richness of the mythological, and he's also thinking of it in relationship to stars, to our contemporary mythological figures who are greater than life and can't help but being screens for the projection of all kinds of desires and fears. I also think with Berger that there's, I mean, in this story that there's this idea of kind of the triumph of money over humanity, and that a mythological figure so famous for changing people into animals is pretty important. The thing that's really amazing to me about Berger is how the mythological and the dead and the different orders of time are all woven together with a very kind of flat, realistic affect. Part of Berger's gift is to say, like, no, like, the dead are always with us. Like, that's not supernatural. That's just what it means to be alive. You know, it doesn't make any sense to say like, oh, well, did the ghost of his mom really appear or is that really Circe? Well, of course not. But that this is what it means to have memory and also be in the present. You know, the other version of this is how great Berger is it representing the global and small spaces and the planetary so that it's like they're in the Ritz. He's thinking about England. He's thinking about ancient Greek islands. And he's also thinking about the new Venezuelan economy and the broadcast culture of television in which he was involved. So I think it's that swirl of the mythological, the living, the dead, the present, the past, all woven matter of factly into kind of a thick sensory experience. That's really what Berger does.
0: And why do you think he has the mythological, extravagant mythological beings carry Tyler away at the end?
1: And I think because Tyler is a mythological being and because he's dead and has to go, to a certain degree, at the end he's being taken back into a kind of cosmological register and out of the Ritz.
0: And then we end it with the image of drawing. And of how to sketch something, and with Tyler's last sort of criticism being Verger Stop scribbling, yeah, and that line, what's the past participle of to weave, woven, sir, which was the title when the story came out in the New Yorker, and then in the book it was changed to Madrid, yeah. But obviously that line was important for him when he wrote the story, important enough to make it the title at that point.
1: Really important, yeah, and just in terms of drawing attention to the different kinds of time and kinds of stories that are woven and when weaving you know which of course text textile etc but also as a mythological practice with the loom which is kind of unites writing weaving different kinds of representation into one metaphor and like I mentioned I think that drawing line with horses he gathers a lot in a word like that
0: Mm -hmm. there's also the sense a kind of triumphant sense you know he's woven sorry I I have woven the sketch and this is now the end of it
1: yeah
0: sort of statement of purpose that he's now accomplished this drawing yeah and the Tyler. story is
1: so it's really in this kind of counterpoint one line of dialogue that'll take place in the past and then the next line will be in the present and so there is i think this even more than most of berger's stories there is a sense of both being able to see the strands and the larger tapestry or text that they produce
0: on a different level this kind of writing that Berger does in these stories where he's using his own life, um, using his own name, is something that you also do in fiction. How do you decide where to fictionalize? And what to keep that's real, and how much of this do you think is fiction? I mean, was John Berger sitting in a lobby in Madrid, and he saw these people, or some of these people?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Berger has a much more interesting life than I have, and so maybe I, I think <laughs> that he's writing a kind of memoiristic prose in which he's not in the center that I really admire. Even, I mean, he's central as a formal device. You know, he's central. He's the person who's having the experiences, but what he gets done is really impressive to me. For me, part of it is that I really am interested in prose's ability to represent consciousness and the rhythms of consciousness, and that leads me towards the first person most of the time. I find that the way I know how to dramatize interiority and exteriority most effectively is often with a version of myself. I mean, I also, in the two novels I've published, they're very concerned with the kind of boundary between art and life, something that Berger is also very concerned with. And so charging the text with this question of what's historically accurate and what's fabricated becomes thematically related to the two novels that I wrote. For Berger here, you know, I mean— fiction is the space where you can have the dead come back and talk to you. I mean, poetry is also a space that's like this without having to get bogged down in debates about whether or not ghosts exist, right? Right. And and I think that for Berger and for me on a much— and I don't compare my writing to Berger's accomplishment, but I think that one of the things I learned from him is that fiction is just a way— To be able to expand what's possible when you do the critical, political, aesthetic work you want to do in a story. If you want to make a point about an artwork that doesn't exist, you can write it into the fiction. You can't do that in a different kind of criticism. If you need an imaginary work to help you make a kind of claim about art that you think is true, the imaginary work is more available in fiction. So for me, I have no fidelity, whatever, to my lived experience in fiction. I only utilize it when I think it can do something for the artwork or raise a question for the artwork. And I think for Berger, he comes in and out of his work often very quietly, sometimes not precisely because fiction for him isn't about just getting rid of experience, it's about having a wider array of resources available for the depiction of experience, his own uh, and others. And also because if you think of writing as interesting, I mean, this is a story about writing. I know that that a lot of people are irritated in advance if they think writing is going to be about a writer or writing or whatever. But if you're interested in in composition, if you care about what it means to write and represent and tell a story as much as Berger does, of course you're often going to want to dramatize composition itself. You're going to want to say, This is my sketch. This is why I sketch this way. This is why I have these words and not these other words. This is where this notion came to me. It's important if you're remembering your first writing teacher to evoke the writer who's really doing the work, which is Berger. So I think that the historical author is often in the work if you want to think about what it means to tell a story. And certainly Berger is one of our great thinkers about what storytelling might be. Thank
0: you so much, Ben. Thank you. John Berger is the author of nine novels, including G and From A to X, and some three dozen works of nonfiction, including Ways of Seeing and Bento's Sketchbook. Ben Lerner was a 2015 MacArthur Fellow. His most recent book, The Hatred of Poetry, came out this year, and his story, The Polish Writer, was included in the summer fiction issue of The New Yorker last month. You can download more than 100 previous episodes of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes store. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. On the Author's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find The Author's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. You can also hear readings of New Yorker fiction on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps, available from the App Store or from Google Play. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Alex Barron and Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.